Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast, our first episode of 2017, and we're lining up some great guests for you that are going to be on the show in the coming weeks, and uh, I'm really excited to start out the year right with today's guest. My guest is a four-time ABA All-Star and a two-time ABA champion with the Indiana Pacers. He's the number five rebounder in the history of the American Basketball Association and one of the most colorful characters, uh, probably the most colorful league in the history of pro sports. So I'll waste no time. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Bob Netalicki. Neto, how are you? Hey, I'm fine. How are you, sir? Doing really well. Uh, so glad yeah. to have you on the podcast. And i got to go back to the beginning with you because one of the things that I, I really find interesting about your career is you uh, you really went the span of the history of the ABA. You were one of the first guys in, in 1967 who came into this fledgling league before a ball had been bounced. Could you tell me about your experience in choosing the ABA over the NBA at that time, because as I say, you're you're coming into a league that hasn't played a game yet, and in a certain sense, that that had to be a little bit of a leap of faith. Well, I tell you what, what's interesting, and and it's and of course there was no TV, there was no internet back then, and and I I think the modern day, especially the young kids, have no idea that back in the '60s, the NBA. Their TV ratings were behind bowling. The NBA didn't, basically, nobody really, we knew it was there somewhere. And I grew up in Iowa. I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up in Iowa. And, uh, you know, the NBA, we might see a game that was taped every once in a while. And back then, the only games you ever really saw was once in a while on the holidays, they might tape a game of Will Chamberlain playing against Bill Russell. But as far as that goes, I, I couldn't name five players in the NBA back then. And also, the funny part, which a lot of people don't realize, is that in 1966, right, the year before the uh, NBA started, there was only eight NBA teams. Eight. There wasn't 30, there was eight. So, the, you know, the, the TV was limited. Uh, the, the, the players, as far as getting a chance to play back then, there was only 80 slots open. Now there's 450. So there was a lot of players out there that were sometimes better than the players in the NBA, but, you know, they, they there wasn't room for them. They did, there was no room on the roster. And plus, back then, you know, the NBA was paying eight or nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year for their players. I think the top player in the NBA in the early 60s, late 60s or middle 60s, was maybe twenty grand. So a lot of guys said, hey, I can make more money going to uh, dental school or something like that. So right. The, the the NBA wasn't, you know, you didn't go to school, you didn't go out in the playgrounds, you didn't go to college thinking, man, I can't wait to get to the NBA and make all that money. You, you, you didn't really, you didn't really think about it. So when the ABA uh, drafted me, I got a t- telegram and I got from this new league and I'd gotten some feelers uh, from the NBA and the a- and ABA, uh, you know, little things you fill out, send to them. And I remember I got it from the Knicks and the Bullets and and some of this other stuff. And um, 
and uh, I got old notes I was drafted by the Pacers. So they, you know, I went out to see them and sat down and talked to them and saw Indianapolis and, you know, I just kind of listened to the, to the talk. It was, it, you know, you didn't have an agent. You didn't go in there thinking, I want this and I want that. It was just something new. And I think the first offer they made me was, they offered me $12,000. And, of course, I thought that was huge, but I, I tried to be cool and said, well, I'll get back to you guys. And then about a week later, the San Diego uh, it was what were they, the Rockets back then? Yeah, the Rockets. San Diego Rockets drafted me, and I was like the 18th pick in the draft, which today would be, you know, It'd be set for life, right? But that, but that, but back then, um, and Pat Riley was their first pick, and I was their second pick. And uh, this guy called me on the phone. I wish I remember his name. I think it was Josh. I should talk. He's a people know his name, but he called me and. So hey kid, you know we can come out and we'll send you a contract. And they sent me a contract for twelve thousand dollars with no guarantee. Well, you know, about an hour after I uh, the phone call came, here Tinkum, Dick Tinkum, who is, by the way, you'll know in our call later on, is one of the guys. He was the original Pacer owner and the original league counsel and everything else. He called me and said, "Don't sign anything. Don't sign anything." And I think they thought that. Gee, San Diego and California would get my I just couldn't wait to get there. But I really could I really didn't care. So I went over and talked to the Pacers. They offered me sixteen thousand dollars, which was incredible for me back then. Uh, and a two thousand dollar signing bonus. But I really got them. They gave me a no cut, which was something was very hard to get back there, and that kind of sealed the deal. I just wanted to play basketball. And uh, uh, the funny story was Mike Storm and then we're sitting there and they said we'll lease you a car too for a year and I said okay and they said what do you want and I said I'd like a new Corvette well the store says what kind of car is that who makes that I said oh it's a Chevrolet he said oh okay no, no, no problem nice practical Chevrolet then, right <laughs> from what I heard from what they told me the Corvette because they had to pay for the insurance on a 27-year-old kid on a new Corvette. The, the, the insurance in the Corvette costs almost as much as the damn contract. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> that is priceless. And, I, and, and, from, and from what I hear, uh, Neto, about your your time in the 70s, I mean, you probably weren't getting cheated on, uh, you know, testing out what that Corvette could do. No, it was, it was fun. It was, uh, it, you know, you had a car and... Uh, <laughs> And playing basketball, and you know, I had no idea what pro ball was all about. I didn't, I didn't know if I'd make the team. Of course, I had the no cut, but I was, I was just hoping I could play. And I had no idea that uh, you know the talent level in, in, in the pro basketball. You just didn't know because there was nothing at all publicized about pro basketball back then. I mean, and if you look back, the, the thing we saw, which we thought Earl Monroe, you know, the pearl. He's, he was a first-round draft choice in Baltimore, and he had this huge contract. He signed a two-year contract for 24000 a year, and we thought, my God, he broke the bank. And I, I just got on the planet. But that's the way it was back then, and there was no television. So uh, it was a totally different world than it is today. Now, you, you made a really nice transition into pro ball. I mean, you, you made the all-star team your first four years in the league. And you and obviously there in in Indiana, you guys put something tremendously special uh, together with that roster that you had: Roger Brown, uh, your buddy Mel Daniels, Freddie Lewis, 
later on McGinnis and uh, uh, Darnell Hillman and guys like that. Uh, you know, and you were on, a, of course, on the 70 and 72 uh, championship teams. Uh, what was it like being on a team that was that was that good? Because I, I think that a, a lot of folks who are NBA fans or, or folks that aren't even necessarily uh, that educated on on the, the ABA and what it was like at that time, uh, you know, don't, don't really understand just how uh, incredibly good those Pacers teams were. Well, you know, the, the first year I came into camp and. And of course, Roger Brown. And if anybody is listening to this podcast or something hasn't seen the uh, documentary called uh, Undefeated, you can go on the internet and find it and watch it on YouTube about Roger Brown. Uh, you need to see it because Roger Brown was probably the best basketball player in the world when he came to, when he got out of high school, literally. Um, he was so good. And he got, you know, he had got in that point. Uh, they accused him of being a, able to gamble, which he never was. And him and Connie Hawkins got banned from uh, from basketball. And so here's Roger, hadn't played uh, organized basketball for four or five years, and he came to us. I'd never heard of him. I played Division One basketball for four years. I don't know who's Roger Brown, and he shows up, and, and we signed him, and because the NBA would wouldn't do it. And, of course, Roger later sued the NBA. He and Connie both and got a nice settlement because they had no reason to do it. And um, he comes to camp, and, I mean, I would literally, he did things the first two or three weeks in camp with a basketball that I just, I would stop and just say, I, I, I just, I, I don't believe I just saw that. I said, who the hell is this guy? He was that good. He was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. Wow. I don't care what anybody says. If, if, if when he was right, he came to us at probably sixty percent of his physical ability because his knees had gone. You know, he hurt his knees on playing on pavement and stuff. And and this guy, <laughs> I mean, if my anybody would have tried to guard, you couldn't guard. I mean, it was impossible. And I think if you see this documentary, like George Gervin, who's the Iceman or somebody, um, he says, you know, there's three people in the world you can't guard: Kobe, you can't guard Michael, and nobody can guard Roger Brown. Period. And he was that good. So I was shocked when, when I started playing with him. And then, of course, our first year, you know, we were all new to the game. And, and I try and tell kids these days, I said, to make it to the pros, once you leave college, and Slick told me this, my coach, he said, you know, you've got to make a, a, an adjustment. And if you physically can't do it, take a yardstick. You go from high school to college, it's maybe a six-inch jump. You jump to the pros, it's the rest of another 30-inch jump. And... Uh, I'm not saying I was, it wasn't hard work or anything like that. It's just a God, you know, either you got it or you don't. I say it's a God given ability. If you don't have the ability, you're not going to make it. And that's why you see some of these kids that come out. And we've, we had a few that came to our place that, you know, they'd be college All Americans or the greatest player in college and they'd come out and they can't make it because they can't. They, they don't get that. You have to get that much better. And I, and, I, and in the, in the talent level, when I got in the league, just astounded me. I couldn't believe how good these guys were. And playing against Connie Hawkins, who you've heard that name, I'm sure. Of course. Uh, Connie Hawkins, every time I played against him, I learned something. It was like, it was like going to school with the, it was like a, some young physicist going to school with, the, with Einstein. I mean, it was incredible how much I learned. And, and, and then the second year, uh, we got Mel, and that was the biggest trade the Pacers ever ever made. And you'll hear about that in the book. It was made. It was made over 
three martinis on a on a, on a cocktail napkin <laughs> in a Minnesota bar. Believe it or not. Well, no, no, let's uh, l- l- t- tell me about <laughs> tell me about this book real quick because I know that you've got a book in the works, and I, I, personally, I can't wait to read this. Uh, could you tell my audience a little bit about this book? How it, how it sure. you know came into uh, uh, your mind as something that you wanted to do? Well, it, you know. It, there's been some books written, and one of the really good books was Terry Pluto wrote Loose Balls. Oh. It was a funny, good, lot of stories, Love great stories. Book. Love but it. They never really got to the real stories. They got, they did the funny stuff, but the real stories and the behind what really happened and the Pacers, especially the Pacers, were were the league basically. They had great management. They had great people, and Dick Tinkham who I am very close with. He was the original Pacer owner. And like I said, he was the league counsel. He he was the glue that held the league together for about four years. And he, uh, he he talked to me about three or four years ago, and he just said, you know, he said, we're all getting old. He said, we need to tell real stories. And then he told me a story. And I said, pardon me, you got to be me. You're kidding. And and some of the things that happened, and I said, "Wow!" And he said, "We got to we got to put this in. We got to write a book." And I'm not a writer, and he's not a writer. And uh, we we got this. We went through three or four people, and there's a kid named Robin Miller, who who uh, right was was a cub reporter and traveled with the team the first three or four years, and then he became a sports editor of the Indianapolis Star. And now he does uh, he does all the NBC. Uh, he does. He's a pit reporter and does a lot of racing, a ton of racing stuff. And he's a pretty, got a pretty big name in the Midwest. Well, he and he's a funny guy. And he said, "Well, he, he'd like to write some stuff." So we're collaborating this crazy book. We've been working on it for about a year and a half. And and, um, and I'll just tell you one story real quick. And uh, Dick, this is what got me interested in with Dick was Dick told me, "Did you know in the second year in the league when we had Mel?" We played the Kentucky Colonels the first round of the playoffs. And we got down, we lost the first game. And we got down 3-1 to Kentucky. And, and But at that time, no team had ever come back from 3-1. You're done. Toast. Well, the board of directors of the Pacers had, had this emergency meeting the night for the, the last three games. And they were all well. We you know we can't. We, we're gonna. We don't have any money. We're done. We're done. Blah, blah, blah. Well, they had a board meeting the morning of the seventh game, and they were going to. If we lost that game, which everybody thought we would, we, there's no way we we're going to win it. Had we lost that game, they were already had. They already hired bankruptcy attorneys. It was done. <laughs> I mean, the places were done. Folding finished. That would have been the league folding. The league would have folded. And uh, basketball wouldn't have been the same as it is today. Period. I mean, there's just and there's the funny part of that story is there's about four other instances that happened. One with our team, and then two in, in the league. And it's the stories you can't you can't make this stuff up. It's crazy. I mean, it's literally a bottle of whiskey saved the league in one meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have, they will have to go into that. Uh, and you have to read the book to read about it, but I, I just sat there and listened to him. And I said, "You got to be kidding me! This stuff really happened." And, and he started telling me stories, and then of course there's the thousand stories, uh, you know, that happened in the league. And you take Bobby Leonard. There's there's a whole story okay. right there. <laughs> All right, now I, I I've got to ask you about Slick Leonard because 
I mean, Slick coached the Pacers for many years, even several years after the merger, and, you know, quite a character, and one of the things that I've really been impressed by is, uh, as I've learned more about Slick through the years, is like the sense of fraternity and family that he really emphasized with you guys. Um, You know, wanting guys to socialize off, off the court. Uh, with one another. I mean, what was Slick like to, to play for? And, I, and I've certainly read in places that I know you have a great relationship with Slick, but that Slick could be kind of tough on you at times. Oh, God, yeah. He, I mean, he's threatened my life many times. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he, you know, our first year, you know, Slick held, held the uh, training camp here. And the training camp was pretty interesting because everybody and their brothers showed up for it. There's 100 people. Some One farmer kid showed up and more cut off their overalls with his <laughs> uniform and Slick actually kind of liked him but you know he, Slick just he basically ran him to death and then the, I'd say 80% of them were thrown up on the sidelines and, and that, the next day he said be here the next tomorrow morning because I'm going to run you more nobody showed up so, <laughs> so <laughs> he had a way of doing that but but I knew him before the the, the, the first season was over and, and he, he I, I used to go out and have beers with him in the summer and he kept telling us he said you know you guys got some really great talent he said you're just not playing together you have no chemistry and that's the way it is today in pro basketball that's why a lot of these teams you know they, they start bringing in new guys over here and if you don't have chemistry you know these teams you have to it, it's it's a five-man team it's not it's not a one-man team and uh so anyway he uh we started out the second year, and uh, we just we just weren't clicking. We just uh, the coach we had was a nice guy. His name was Larry Stableman, and, and he was a young guy, and, and he really was weighing over his head. He couldn't he couldn't relate to the players, and and uh, the guys just didn't respect him. And, and uh, so they brought Slick in, and that all changed real quick. And uh, Roger Brown, who like I said was one of the best ever, was. I mean, he could do things at half speed that most people couldn't do at 120% speed. And he, and he had a tendency to loaf a little bit. And Slick actually left him home on a game, told him he was going to trade him, which he wasn't, but he told him that, which changed his whole mind. But what really impressed me about Slick is the first game he coached here, we were up in Minnesota. And there was a, uh, a referee that I don't think Slick liked too well, and the guy was making craziness crazy calls and Slick said um, you know he yelled at him he said you make one more call I'm going to smack you in the mouth okay and we all said yeah right <laughs> so about two next time down the court the guy made some doofus call and all this corner of my eye I look around I'm like god there's Slick Slick running out of the court and took a haymaker swing at the guy you know at a referee <laughs> Oh. And, and they threw him out of the game and everything. And that's when we all looked at each other and said, who do I like this guy? <laughs> this guy's great. Uh. Yeah, that was kind of the start. And, and he, he, he just, he just, he wanted, you know, he, his whole theory was after a game, I want you guys all with me and having a drink. I don't want you going out. And I want you, we're all going to be a family. We're all going to work together. And that's the way it was. Oh, a real funny story is uh, a guy named Mike Lewis, who was from Duke. And he'd never met Slick before, and he was a rookie. And he, um, he, uh, we were down, uh, down, far down in Florida, and Slick said, let's go get something to eat after the game. So we went out, and uh, you know, the cocktail waitress comes up to our table, and there's me and Mike, and Slick's sitting there, and Slick says, three gin tonics. So she said, okay, and she started to walk away, and he reached out and grabbed her and said, wait, 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 
you got to take these guys' order. Then I knew, I said, this guy, this guy is, is a different, cut from a different cloth, babe. But he was, he was a great coach, and uh, we had our, hey, he and I had our go-rounds, I mean, he threatened, he'd get mad at you, and I mean, I've told stories that uh, we had a roast for everybody. And I told some stories I couldn't tell on the air. But, uh, you know, the thing of it is, he had these guys that uh, I don't think there was a guy on the team that wouldn't run through a brick wall for him. Now, i got to put in a request for a, for a slick Leonard story here that I heard you tell. And it's classic. <laughs> it, the, the March of Dimes story. Can, can you oh, tell my, my audience the March of Dimes story? Because that one is priceless. <laughs> You know, that's funny because that was after I, I was traded to Dallas after the, in the 60s, I think it was. <clears throat> and I'd come back home, uh, and I, uh, we played it here, I think, and, and we didn't have a game for a couple of days. So I stayed back in Indy because I still had an apartment here. And I went to the Pacer game, and they were playing Utah. And I, I remember that uh, we were sitting, a good friend of mine, Al Friedman, we're sitting in my apartment that morning before the game, and the March of Dimes telethon's on, and the guy that did the, I'm not sure his name, he, he did the all the Maytag commercials. Um, he was on that uh, uh, show with uh, Lonnie Anderson. And oh, uh, Gordon, Gordon Jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah him. He comes marching out, and he's doing the March of Dimes telethon. <laughs> so... My buddy Einstein, who could do a great Bobby Leonard impersonation, <laughs> calls the March of Dimes uh, place, television place, and he said, Hi there, this is Bobby Leonard. And the girl answered the phone, with obviously a pastry fan. Oh my God, da, da, da. he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give $100 for every punt we beat them Utah Stars by. And five seconds later, all of a sudden, this woman rushes out on the stage on the camera, and a Gordon guy, he says, oh, my God, Bob Leonard, coach the Pacers. They're going to da 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 We go, oh, Christ. So we went to the game, and we're sitting at the press table, and they're playing Utah. In the first half, in the first quarter, they're up six points, and we thought, man, I could feel them. At halftime, they're up about nine. We figured, oh, boys, you're going to have to spend 900 bucks. And then all of a sudden, because it was Utah was actually favored. And then the next end of the third quarter, it's like <laughs> it's like 16 points, and they end up winning by 32. <laughs> so uh, with about a minute to go in the game, uh, Bill Danella, who's the PR guy, gets on the phone. He says, "Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Leonard has promised that he will pay the March of Dimes." And he told the whole and it's like, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs> and we were dying. Well, the best thing of this, it made the first page of the of the USA Today. Uh, <sighs> next day was headline in USA Today. Pacer coach donates thirty two hundred dollars. And uh, we, I never told Slick this story till last summer. And I finally told him. I, I said, "I'm the guy that did it." <laughs> oh my God! It, but, uh, that was just. That's just the story. That is that. Now, now I gotta ask you. You know, you the 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 story goes is that you know you guys were uh, didn't shy away from uh, the the fisticuffs or the the on court uh, altercations and that kind of thing. Uh, how much of that is how much of that is legend and how much of that is uh, the, the, pretty much the way that it was? Well, that's the way it was. I mean, Roger Brown had a 
saying that the first year Mel Daniels was here, we had 82 games, we had 82 fights, and he, Mel started all of them. <laughs> but, uh, but, but we had, well, one time we had a, we, Virginia Squires were here, and uh, Mel, of course, was Mel, started a fight with uh, some guard, hit him, and he turned, they started fighting at the half court, and all of a sudden were, the players are on the court, and fans come charging out on the court, and then all of a sudden the police are out on the court, and everybody's swinging, and, and uh, Al Bianchi, Cole, uh, Al Bianchi, uh, Cole cocked the policeman, I think. And, oh, uh, man. Make a long story short is they arrested the coach, they arrested Al Bianchi, Charlie Scott, Jim Eakins, and I, two other players. They had four players and the coach were arrested to take us out town, and the Patriots had to go bail them out. But here's the best part, there was no technicals. So an ar- arrest, but no technicals. There was, there was no, no, there was no technicals. You could swing and fight. And they never called it. <laughs> See now, I, in, can you imagine in the in, in this day and age in the social media? I mean, uh, forget yeah. forget about it. Somebody gets arrested. Are you kidding me? I mean, I, I guess like there that, were like they <laughs> the, they had that malice in the palace thing. Yeah, like we have one of those about every three weeks. I mean, it was, I've seen some stuff. I mean, I, well, we had we had some crazy fans at our place. I, I can remember one time when there was a fight over in the corner, and there was Kentucky. I think it was Kentucky, and I think it was Gene Moore. He was a big center for Kentucky, and another guy were fighting. And I, two, I knew these two car dealers. They were used car dealers. Came out on the court and started swinging haymakers at uh, at Gene Moore. I mean, it was. It was, it was, it was a different world back then. Let's just say. Now, of course, San Diego brought in Wilt Chamberlain, thinking that he was going to be a player coach, and the Lakers uh, blocked him from playing. And then Wilt sort of, I guess, tried to make a passable attempt at pretending that he was coaching for a, for a season or two. Uh, I guess Stan Albeck was probably doing most of the coaching there but but uh, you also I've also heard you tell a great story about Wilt coming out and uh, uh, ch- trying to get Mel to calm down a little bit when uh, well I wasn't really too much trying about it Mel started <laughs> a fight with Flynn Robinson Flynn Robinson on the middle of the court I was on the court and in those days you know Slick would say if a fight starts everybody's going to be everybody better be out on the court I don't want to see any empty seats so I turned around and I saw this fight starting and I turned around and saw here comes the bench. You know, six guys running out on the floor to get in the fight. And it was like it was like somebody put a clicked an off switch. They just stopped. Dead in their tracks and started backing up. And I went, What the hell? And I turned around and I see Wilt walking by me. <laughs> and he walks up to Mel Daniels. And I'm telling you, Mel Daniels is one of the strongest people you've ever met. I mean, his handshake. I've seen guys, football players, start crying when he shook their hand. I mean, he's he's a strong, huge guy. And he walks right up to Mel, facing him, wrapped his arms around him, picked Mel up about a foot off the ground. And here's Mel's legs are just dangling like a little kid. <laughs> and, and he's sitting there going, Mel... Oh, you know, calm down, little boy. Calm down, big guy. And Mel was just trying. Mel was struggling, but he couldn't move. And Mel afterwards, Mel told me it was like he was in a vice. He couldn't move. He came back to the bench and said, "How come you guys didn't help me?" Freddie <laughs> looked at him and said, "Yeah, right. <laughs> That's Wilt, man. But Wilt, 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 in my opinion, <clears throat> Milt, Wilt, in my opinion, was the 
for his position, was the greatest player that ever lived. I mean, he he was the guy could do it. I mean, he was he was he was a, he was a super. I mean, I've just screwed around playing in scrimmage and stuff. And I mean, the guy was oh my god! I mean, boy, he averaged fifty. Think about that. The guy it's... averaged fifty, and they were trying to stop. Him. You know, yeah. I and mean, he, he was great. Amazing. That's just another idiot. He was a cool guy. I mean, really, the thing about Wilt, he was too nice a guy. Really a nice guy. That, you know, that's sort of like the rap that you'll hear on him, is that if Wilt had a, had a bigger mean streak, that he, he could have been even more dominant, as hard as that is to oh, imagine. If he if he'd had a mean streak, I'll put it this way, you know, you put him up against these you know, uh, Shaquille and all these guys. I mean, it'd been no contest. Period. I mean, if, he, if Will, if Will didn't. Will actually, I think, uh, you know, tried not to hurt people. <laughs> I mean, Will, I mean, he was, he, he was that good. He never fouled out of a game, ever, in in, in his pro career, which boggles my mind. <laughs> he was. Uh, he was he was he was a great one. I'll tell you that. Now I want to ask you about going to Dallas because obviously. Oh, by the way, before before we forget, uh, yeah. the title of our book is called "We Change the Game." We change the game, and uh, yeah, and, and I've actually trademarked that phrase, and it's called "We Change the Game," which I think is a very fitting title because the ABA changed basketball any way you cut it. Uh, it was it turned it into an entertainment. It got it, you know. But back then it was a dull, boring. Nobody watched it, and the NBA, you know, it made it showtime. It was showtime before Magic and them came along. The NBA that people know and love today owes a tremendous amount of gratitude to to what you guys did. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Well, it, it, the, I've got some interviews I've seen with Jerry West. And, Phil Jackson and talking about the NBA, baby, and they basically said, you know, it wouldn't basketball would not be where it is today without the ABA. I mean, it it, it changed the way the game was played. It, it opened it up. It, um, um, it to, what I tell people right now is is the NBA is basically the ABA with a brown ball. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. It is. I mean, okay. the, the dunk contest, the three point shot. The the more of a more of a wide open game, all those things go back to to you guys. I, you know, let me ask you about the the red, white, and blue ball. By the way, I mean that's sort of an obvious question, and I, I almost uh, went over it. I mean, you were known as being a as being a good shooter, uh, you know, especially for a big man uh, having a really nice touch. What was that like for you as as a shooter? Uh, the you know the the tri panel ball. Did you did you like that? You know, it's it's funny when when it first came out, I thought it's going to be weird and everything. But once you start playing, you didn't notice. You really didn't notice it. I mean, it was just a ball. I mean, you could see it. You could see it better in the brown one. You could see the rotation better. But as far as it just being a red, white, and blue ball, I never, you never, you never really thought about it that way. I don't, I don't know. That sounds crazy, but right. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes the NBA ever made was not uh, not taking the ball and. And they, took, they, they took well another story in the book where Tinkham went to New York and he was the head of the merger committee the first time around and he uh, Ned Irish who was big in New York uh, honcho hated the ABA he came in he told he looked at Tinkham in the eye and he said he said I call, call him an asshole and he said uh, he said the one thing we'll never you'll never ever see in this league 
two things you'll never see, actually. He says, one thing you'll never see is that red, white, blue ball, and the second thing you'll never see is that stupid three-point shot. <laughs> well, we're halfway there. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it didn't take him long to adopt the three-point shot. I mean, I think it came in no, in 79, no. so maybe about three years, and, and they came on board with that. I mean, obviously it wasn't used as, you know, the, the kind of weapon that it's become in the game today. But I, but I, but I agree with you. I, I, I think uh, if they had it to do over again, maybe they would have gone to the red, white, and blue ball. But I, but the, the NBA wasn't the NBA. I was talking to to, to Issel about this. The the, the NBA kind of had its superiority complex going then, right? I mean, they were they well, they, they looked yeah, down on was, you guys. You got, you got to remember back then. It was it was in the sixties. It was a different era back then, and, and there was a lot of what I call not very nice people so involved in some of the NBA teams. You, you know, they, they, they actually had a mandate. They didn't want any teams in the South, period. Mm. And, and you know, it took a long time for them to allow black players to play, things like that. And, and it just was, it was just, it was a changing, it was a change of the time, and they were the dinosaur, and they didn't want to go, and they, and, and they went, they went kicking and screaming into the modern, modern day basketball. But uh, you know, it was uh, and Red Arabic was the biggest problem of them all. He was a. You, did you hear about you? You heard about Slick? You know, Slick and Red Arabic didn't get along very well. Period. <laughs> and uh, did you heard what Slick did um, did to Red Arabic when they were playing and when Slick was coaching for Baltimore? Didn't you? I'm not sure. I have. Well, you can. Sam Jones tells this story, but they were playing in Boston Garden, where that's like Red Shrine or something. <laughs> and Red Arabic had this player called named Tim Luskatov, who was a not a very good player, but he was like a football player. They'd send him in to knock guys around and rough guys up. And and the Slick had this player named Terry Dishinger from Purdue, and Luskatov was in there just beating him up. Mercifully beating him up, beating up on him, you know, hurt trying to help him and everything. And Slick, uh, Slick was getting mad. And about they called a timeout. And Sam Jones says, all of a sudden, here comes Slick. He walked right into the right into the uh, um, Celtic huddle and grabbed Arabic by the neck, by his shirt collar, yanked him right up to his face, and said, "If you don't get Luskatov off Terry." I'm going to punch you in the mouth. And nobody did anything. I guess they, everybody just froze. And Arabic, I guess, peed his pants. Slick said he peed his pants, which I probably did. But ever since then, there was a big vendetta. You know, Arabic hated Slick and right. didn't like him. But that's a true story. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, the one thing Slick used to say is uh, that Arabic had the strongest hands in the NBA. He held on to Russell's jersey for 12 years. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, gr- great players make a make a coach great, right? I mean, there's <laughs> some truth in that. I, I, I maybe yeah, I could, I might right. could have coached Russell. You put a good jockey on secretary, and he's going to win every day. <laughs> All right, now let, let me ask you about the move, the, the move to Dallas, because obviously you you experienced a lot of success in Indiana, two championships, uh, multi-time All Star, and, and and all of that, and then you get sold, I believe, to uh, to, to Dallas uh, in, during the the summer of '72. Um, how, how was that transition? I'm always fascinated when I talk to pro athletes who have been traded 
because that's one part of it. You know, I, I always say myself and 99.9% of my listeners, we're, we're fans of the sport, but we didn't have the talent to, to play it on that level. And we kept, we wish that we did. And so, you know, we see these athletes and we think, man, I, I would have loved to have been able to have uh, made that money and had that uh, opportunity. But one thing we don't think about is, is getting uprooted and sent somewhere else to, to, to do our job uh, at somebody else's decision. What was that like to get traded, and how, how was you it for can, you? You can, cross, you, you, can cross out, you can cross out make the money, because we didn't <laughs> the money back then. But, uh, well, here's the thing, back the thing about the ABA and our teams is there's no way, in, there's no way in today's modern game that, they, that we could have ever, they could have ever put a team together like we had. Because we had Mel Daniels, we had you know myself and, and Freddie Lewis and Roger Brown. Now here we had just won a championship. We just been to the finals three years in a row, okay? And we get George McGinnis after the in the fifth year. Now George McGinnis was was the top player in college, so he would have been the number one draft choice. And we just won a championship, so there's no way we would have got him, right? We would have had to pick last. Never, yeah. Back then, he signed. He signed a hardship contract, jumped to the ABA, and here we here we have we have the best team in the in, in the league, and we get the best player in college, and, and that could not have happened in, in today's game. So basically, George came in, and George was oh my god, he was he was he was playing my position, and you know I started half the year, George started, half, but I could see you know George was. I mean, he was that good, and so they. I was. I became expendable. They needed a guard, supposedly. So they. I had. I had a no. <laughs> Here's another wonderful story of being the book about Dickie Tinkham's uh, uh, financial shenanigans. They supposedly sold me to Dallas for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay, mm-hmm. because in my contract I had a no cut, no cut, no trade contract. But if they sold me, I could. I could find some other team to match it. Well, if they had sold me for ten or twenty grand, Mike Storner wanted me to come to come to Kentucky. But they made this wild figure up, and then of course, a week after they sold me to, to um, um, Dallas, they mysteriously bought Donnie Freeman from <laughs> Dallas for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Money never changed hands at all. So that was, <laughs> it was just an incredible that, coincidence. That's the way it was back then. It was, a different, it was a different world, all that crazy stuff. And you know what? I, I, I knew it was business. It was basketball. I went down to Dallas, and I had some fun playing for Babe McCarthy, who was a great coach. And uh, and I and I got to be get, get guess what? I was the first starting center and the first on the first starting five of the San Antonio Spurs. Right, that's kind of cool. Right, you know. That... I, I, I actually I've done something I don't think anybody can do. They they said I played in the same game for both teams, which I did. All right. I, I don't. I think somebody else might have done that. I don't know, but that was a crazy deal to be in both box scores. But the one thing I've got that I don't think anybody has is I was the starting center. On the first game ever in franchise history for two NBA teams. How about that? Center for the base. I was the starting center for the Pacers in '67, <laughs> and I was the starting center for San Antonio in '72. 
that's something. So that was, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. That, I, hey, that in the corner will give me half a cup. Of coffee, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, it's impressive to me. I, you know, I, I, I got to ask you. Yeah, the the, the team uh, winds up being uh, taken over by you know San Antonio businessman. I think Red McCombs and a conglomerate and and Angelo Drosos and some of those guys. Yeah, and, they were really nice guys too. What What was that like? Uh, because I mean, I know in the ABA there were. A, if you know the history of the ABA, there was a lot of franchise relocations and ownership changes and things like that. But uh, what was that like when you found out that you guys were moving to to San Antonio and you know you were uh, becoming a part of uh, you know the the reboot of that franchise? I really see. It really didn't bother me that much because see, I had an apartment back in Indianapolis. I had a bar. I had my bar back there in Indy, and I, that's where I lived in the off season. And uh, and uh, so I, it was just kind of it was just another team to me. I mean, it really was. I, and but when I got to San Antonio, it was a really really cool. Dallas is a great city, and San Antonio is a really cool city. But it was kind of fun, uh, you know, going down there, and I met a lot of people, and uh, and we started it out, and then uh, Pacers traded back for me after about uh, a month, and uh, that was good because. I, I, I had a coach named Tom Nasalki, and uh, we didn't really see eye to eye. Of course, he didn't see eye to eye with a lot of people, but uh, you know, we just kind of didn't get along very well. But uh, you know, they were they were a new team, and they got they got they ended up having some great teams. I mean, they got George Gervin and they had, they had a bunch of guys. Jimmy Jimmy Silas is a rookie down there when I was there. Oh yeah, J- Captain Late J- uh, James Silas. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy got cut by Houston. And uh, we picked him up. And that was a big mistake by them, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'll say. I, I you mentioned something just a couple of minutes ago that pro- probably uh, uh, s- some of the listeners are, are going to want to smack me if I if I don't uh, get you to uh, talk about some of the details of it. But I, I'm aware of this. You uh, you did play on two different teams in the same game. Now. Do you do you want to explain? No, we're not drunk. Uh, those of you that are listening, man, I know, I know Bob's having a beer right now, but I don't think Bob's drunk, and I know I'm not. Bob really did play on both the Pacers and the Spurs in the same game. Now he didn't get traded at halftime, but uh, yeah, that's, why, that's why I always tell people when they ask me, I said, "Well, I got traded. My coach got pissed and traded me at halftime." <laughs> so how did how did that situation come about? Because I think it was November fourteenth, nineteen seventy. You suit up with the Spurs against the Pacers, and then December second, the game is completed, and by that time, you've been dealt uh, back to the Pacers. Well, you know what happened was, uh, I guess uh, the Spurs. I believe it was the Spurs. Uh, they got the ball in, and, uh, and the Pacers said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa the time clock had run out." But the, the referee gave the ball back to the Spurs, which is our team, my team back then. And we hit a shot and won the game. Well, after they did some, they protested the game and they did some film or whatever it was, and they realized that they didn't reset the clock. So they said, no, the Pacers, uh, the Spurs get the ball back with 30 seconds to go or something like that. I'm not sure what it was. But uh, I know the Spurs were, the Spurs had to take the ball out with 30 seconds left. And, uh, so they, they we played that last thirty seconds in Indianapolis, and by then I'd been traded to the Pacers. So, and the funny part of it was, is Mel Daniels 
was was uh, wasn't feeling very well. So uh, Slick started me at center. I think he did. I think that's the way it went. He started me at center that night, and the Pacers were taking the San Antonio was throwing the ball in, and they threw the ball in, and it got intercepted. Guess who intercepted it? Me. <laughs> so, so here I was trained. Anyway, the big long story short, it went into overtime, and the Pacers ended up winning. And uh, but if you look, pull up the box score, it shows me scoring in you know in the poor San Antonio and like <laughs> I've got a twin brother playing for San Antonio. Or something. Yeah, now that's that's but, a that's one that can't be topped. You know that can't be right. topped. I don't know if somebody else. I, I don't. Is that the only time that ever happened? I mean, because you don't have basketball no, games sure. that get split up like that. I was talking to Peter Vesey. You know that is sure. Peter was telling me that he thought there was one other guy that did that, but he wasn't sure who, so uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, if we can't remember who he is, then you you, you get all the glory if he's lost to history, but but that's remarkable. <laughs> uh, I, I, I got to ask you about the some of the crazy promotions and things that were done. I mean, I know that the Pacers had cow milking contest, and I think there was a wrestling bear at, at, at halftime one time, and just and of course it wasn't just the Pacers. I mean, around the league there were uh, all kinds of uh, things that were being done to drum up interest and and sell the league. You know, it's like when you're when you're number two, uh, you, you have to work harder. And the ABA did some you know promotional stuff that is extremely memorable. Even you know forty plus years later, that, what are your memories of some of that goofy stuff that they would do well, to I try and I, get I fans in? Another thing. Another thing the league did, and when the Minnesota Muskies moved to moved to Florida, it became the Floridians. Yeah. The next year, in Miami, uh, they're the first ones that had the, the ball girls in bikinis. Yes, they did. And, and that was just oh my gosh, you, you know, people. You think that the world was coming to an end, and oh Lord, girl. Now you know it, it was basically the, the precursor to the cheerleaders today. Yeah. Because because if you'd seen that. Some of the cheerleaders they had back in the uh, you know the first few years of the NBA didn't even have cheerleaders, but when they did, they looked like they were going to a nuns' convention. <laughs> uh, it was a different era. That yeah. Was funny. Oh, they had all kinds of stuff. They had a they had a uh, Utah had a deal where they had um, Muhammad Ali spar with a guy with uh, one of a uh, fighter that was owned by the uh, team owner. And like twelve thousand people or thirteen thousand people showed up before the game and watched the sparring, and then when the game started, there was like five hundred left in the, in the <laughs> arena when the game started. <laughs> but, kind of but the crowd was <laughs> announced as twelve thousand, I'm sure, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we had a we had a game in um, we had a game and they played in the first year they played in a arena called Teaneck uh, Armory in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was the New Jersey Americans, I believe, the first year. And uh, they, their heat went out. And we came to the arena, and it was the floor temperature was like 12 degrees. <laughs> and we had to play the game, and we were all warming up. Slick was really mad because he came out, and you know, we all had our overcoats on. We were warming up in our overcoats. <laughs> and Slick got mad. We had our overcoats on, but it, it was literally 10 degrees inside that arena, and we played the game. That's insane. Some of those venues that you guys were playing in those those days, let's face it, were not the greatest. 
Yeah, they had a few that worked there. But I love the old Fairgrounds Coliseum here. was pretty cool. It was a, it was a really a neat place to play. You know, with, with a standing room only 10, 11,000. There's some stories on, again, how the Pacers, had they not been able to get the arena downtown, Stark Market Square Arena, that they could continue because they they had no money. They had, they had to have revenue. And there's there's another story in the book that Pickens told me that's that's crazy. I mean, it, it's almost like this didn't really happen, but it happened. And uh, you know, the way we look at it, uh, our book thing is, look what's happened to the Indiana Indianapolis back when I came here at seven o'clock at night. You could you know you could walk down Indianapolis not all the way down through town naked, and nobody would see you because <laughs> there was nobody there. I thought they rolled up the and, sidewalks uh, at at six, Neto. <laughs> no, that's pretty close, yeah. And uh, and uh, now look what they got. There would be no Colts. I mean, it's it's amazing what. Uh, and we all we went all to the the league and the ABA and, and a lot of guys that did some crazy and uh, and uh, pretty uh, pretty bold stuff that happened back then. Well, let's talk about how it how ultimately it ended. Uh, I, I know that. Uh, the last year of the ABA was also the last year of of your career. As I said at the top of this, you you came in the first year of the ABA, and then your last uh, the last year of your career wound up being the last year uh, of the ABA. When you look back on how the merger went down and how in that last season things kind of started to unravel, I think I believe three teams uh, folded uh, during the course of that season from the preseason on. And by the time you get and to the I end was, of the year, it was it was you. I think you guys were down to seven teams. Well, I wasn't the, the ninth year. Uh, the ninth year we started the year, and I actually retired three weeks into the season. And the reason I did it was uh, they had new owners here with the Pacers, and uh, these guys that bought the team, uh, you know, if they if they would have uh, bought the Indianapolis Five Hundred, it would have run backwards. I mean, that's how bad they were. <laughs> But uh, I made a deal with them. Uh, for some reason, they didn't. For some reason, they didn't like me. I don't. Really, I didn't really care. But I made a deal where I actually retired and got twice as much money to retire. So I had to do it. And so I really wasn't that familiar with you know what went on during the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you know, I went to a few games and things like that. But uh, you know the the merger was was coming down the pike and, and the merger story is fascinating what happened with the merger and people have no idea you know the merger was you know the NBA ABA merger was a signed sealed delivered deal in 1970 all all, all the NBA teams signed on all the ABA there was going to be t- all the ABA teams were going to the NBA in 1970 it was a done deal and then the Oscar Robertson filed that lawsuit uh, the um, antitrust lawsuit which tied it up in court for four or five years. But it's a shame it didn't go through back then, but that's just the way it happened. But Tinkham has so many stories about that. It's amazing. All right, listen, I, and I, I cannot wait to get my hands on on this book. What 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 is what what's the ETA I, 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 I on this thing? Story. I'm going to ask you. I'm going right. to ask you a question. All right, you're right. I'll buy you three beers. Okay? <laughs> All right, uh, and I'll fly you down here to do it. <laughs> this is going to be a hard question, I think. You know, you know, television. They just signed that new contract with the NBA. Yep, uh, twenty-five billion over ten years. And uh, so that's two and a half billion a year more that they're getting in TV revenue. The Pacers, first year the Pacers were here, they uh, they TV'd all eighty-two games home and away, 
And uh, they said, you know, they had the television contract and everything. At the end, I have the, we have the, we're going to print this in the book. We have the P&L statements for all the years. The, at the profit and loss statement at the end of the year, they have the revenue. What do you think the first year's television, total gross television revenue was for 82 games? Oh, what my do you God. Think it was? For, the, for the entire it's league? For the, no, for the, for the Pacers. Just for the Pacers. For the entire year. They, um, they, they, they TV'd 82 games. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go look. $8,000. Most people don't even that much. Uh, you're, you're, you're high. <laughs> okay. Uh, $2,200. You're 300 low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, it, the, that's... Entire, the entire television revenue for the whole year was $2,500. Wow. And now it's $2.5 billion. That's that's one that that if you put it in, in context, that's one million times what they made. That is insane. Think about that. One million times what they made. I I think about what the 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 St. Louis ownership <laughs> did when this thing when this thing went down. The St. Louis guys got the best deal of anybody because they they got oh, a cut of the television. Brilliant! It's brilliant. It was brilliant. Uh, Back then, let's see when they after the after the merger went down, and their first year revenue was nothing. I mean, the teams were getting maybe two or three hundred thousand a year at the most, and you know one seventh of that, one seventh of two hundred thousand dollars is what, you know, thirty grand. Yeah, thirty grand, a little less. Yeah. And now and now and now that one seventh is ten total million dollars. So, and I, I knew Ozzy Silver. He was a really nice guy, and his brother his brother's still alive, but. That's the greatest. The word imperpetuity <laughs> is is the key to that whole thing. I talked to Donnie Walsh. As a matter of fact, I talked. I was talking to Donnie about a month ago, and he told me he said they tried every way possible to try and break that contract, and they couldn't do it. Uh, yeah, I believe it. I mean, they were screwed on that deal. Just screwed. Well, the best thing is what happened. Here's why. Here's why. Like I said, we'll talk about this in a little while. Uh, the pension thing I'm upset about is that. Is that, uh, you know, Ozzy and them filed a lawsuit against the NBA about a year and a half ago and saying, hey, guys, you know, we're supposed to get one-seventh of the television revenue, but we didn't say just local TV. We uh-huh. said everything, cable, everything, and they wrote them a check for $500 million to settle a lawsuit. <laughs> That's not bad. That's <laughs> not bad at all. I, I was born in 71, and so I, I, I missed out on this. The ABA has been an endless source of fascination for me my entire life, uh, especially going back to when I was a kid. And I, I think a big part of it is, is I'm from Kentucky, and I just missed out on the Colonels. I mean, they, I really became aware of sports, and I can start to remember things that were going on in sports around 1978 or so. That's when my consciousness kicks in. And so I just missed you guys. And I think the frustration for me is Kentucky has never had a professional team since then. And, you know, I no longer live there, but I always wanted Kentucky to have a pro team growing up. And I always thought, man, how did Kentucky miss out on this? And, of course, now I know John Y. Brown took the took the money and had the, the opportunity to, to buy the Buffalo Braves and, and, and all of that. But are, are, is there a part of you that's a little sad as well that Kentucky wasn't able to go into the NBA? Because they were your great rivals, of course. 
Right. There's a group. There's a group of uh, there's a group of people down in uh, Louisville that every year have a sports uh, weekend down there, and they have all the uh, ex colonels back and things like that. And the last couple of years, they've invited me down there, and it's it is really really amazing. I mean, they they have all the ex colonels, and they show up, and, and the people. They had a books uh, Pinky the Gardener, who was the uh, trainer for the sure. Kentucky. Yeah, wrote a little book and had a bunch of pictures in it. And we were in a hotel down there, and I mean, there are people lined a half a mile down the street to buy this book and just uh, just to meet with the colonels. I mean, the people really, really embrace the colonels down there. And now they've got that new uh, uh, Kentucky Fried uh, Arena down there. Or right? It is. Yeah, the Yum Center. Beautiful arena. Yeah. I mean, I think they could. I think they could be good. And they're really a great bunch of guys, but. They're involved now with the uh, with the dropping dimes people and the, the city of Indianapolis and the Pacers. Uh, and, you know, next fall they're going to have a four day big time fifty uh, year ABA reunion. It's going to be it's going to be a blowout. It's going to be really really nice. Fifty uh, year reunion, yeah. I, I'm going to have to try and make it down for that, and, better, and because I can't I can't miss that. I well, you mentioned dropping dimes, and over the course of the uh, this year, as uh, as I've I've gotten to know uh, the fellows over there, the, the mission that you guys are on is so noble and necessary, in my opinion, because you guys, as we've noted, you weren't making uh, you know the crazy money that athletes are making today, and in many cases, guys did not have that safety net, and so some guys have really fallen through the cracks. And, and need help. Can you talk to me a little bit about what uh, what Dropping Dimes uh, is doing, and then get into some of those pension rights issues that uh, sure. that, that you guys have been trying to fight for? Uh, the Dropping Dimes is a, is a foundation that was started by a, a guy named Scott Tarter, who is an attorney with Bozeman County here in Indianapolis, and he was a huge AB fan growing up, and and also a gentleman named Doctor. John Abrams, who is a uh, ophthalmic surgeon here, he's also the Pacers team ophthalmologist, and and he was a ball boy growing up when he was with our in the ABA Pacers. And then there's a guy named Ted Green, who is a documentary filmmaker who made a, a documentary on Roger Brown and, and Slick, and, and they they have this really deep seated. Um, love for the ABA and they started looking at all this thing and I was talking to him about, you know, I was doing the um, this pension thing which we'll go into later but there's a lot of guys out there that played in the ABA that maybe played one or two years that never got anything, never got a, never, never had anything and delving into this issue, I've talked to a lot of people and, and there's guys out there that were fairly decent basketball players that have you know that I've ran into guys living in their cars. I mean, guys that are you know homeless, and it's it's really really sad to see that out there. And so these guys got together and started this foundation, and uh, they've been giving the nations. They're putting on the actually the ABA reunion, the city and the places. Everybody has agreed that the Dropping Dimes Foundation is going to be the recipient of all funds, all all receipts from the ABA reunion, which will be which will be really great. And they've helped people out. And it, what's really amazing is, and I and I, I can tell you. Things that happened, like we had a uh, a person that uh, a player that was a fairly good player in the league, and he's had some hard times and has no money. And he had a terrible, 
problem with his teeth and dental problems, and uh, he didn't have the money to have anything done. And, and they they arranged to have him come up here and had surgeons work on him and, and, and took care of him. And there's a couple other guys that had the, you know, uh, problems and health problems and, and family problems. And they, you know, it's hard to do everything, but they just they're just starting. But it, it's really a it's really a worthwhile thing. And I know the NBA has something like that for its players. But the way we look at it is we are as responsible for the NBA doing what it is today as the NBA players were. And uh, there's a lot of guys out there that uh, you know, just, need a, just need a break. And it's, a, it's really funny how when you do this to these guys, they don't want anybody to know about it because they're embarrassed. They're proud guys. They're big, strong, proud guys. And they don't want to say, hey, I need, I need, a, I need a little assist. And that's where the dropping dimes comes from. That's the Rockefeller, uh, John Rockefeller, you know, giving an assist, drop a, drop a dime on somebody. Right. So I think it's a really neat cause. And we've got a great uh, board of directors. I don't know if you've seen our, our advisory board. We've got, uh, we got like six Hall of Fame. we got George Gurman. we got uh, Spencer Haywood. We've got Dan Issel, uh, Louis Dampier, Slick, George McGinnis. Uh, Bob Bob Costas is on the board. Uh, Peter Vesey. So we've got some. You got some great we've got people. Some pretty great people, and, and and they're doing this, you know, out of their out of the goodwill of their hearts. So it's, it's I'm really I'm I'm proud to be a member. To be honest with you, I'm proud to be a board member. Uh, and and I, I know the pension issue is one that is is terrifically important to you. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about the work that you've done to try and get uh, a, a fair uh, pension for a lot of these players from your era? Well, back in the back in the day, I was a player rep, and uh, when the merger came down, uh, one of the one of the things in the merger was that they were anybody that was eligible for a pension would be funded in the NBA pension program. And the owners agreed on it, and da, da, da. but I, I knew it was the Wild West back then. I can just see these owners sitting around and say, "Yeah, we'll agree to it," but you know, we'll all be dead by the time they're <laughs> sixty-five anyway. So who cares? And that's about what happened. Right. And what they did, they they never really gave anybody a uh, voice or anything in the in the uh, um, you know collective bargaining agreements and where they have cost of living increases and everything right now. And the end. And a lot of the NBA players take their pensions early and and things like that. But uh, you know, if you wait till you're 65 in the NBA, your pension is really, really, it's, it's like tripled in the last few years. It's about seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars a month for every year you played. So if a guy played three years, he's going to get five or six thousand dollars a month at age 65. But the problem the NBA, the ABA thing, they wanted to tell you, no, 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 we're going to give you. Not six thousand a month. We're going to give you three hundred a month, and it wasn't even that much. Excuse me, about one hundred eighty dollars a month, which is ludicrous. And what they were doing is they were dealing. They were dealing in nineteen seventy dollars instead of uh, two thousand sixteen dollars. And and so I started this about seven years ago, and I finally got I got hooked up with a group up in Chicago, a really fine uh, attorney group, uh, headed by a guy named Steve Hart, who's an attorney in Chicago and they've been working on this and working on this and they've got a lot of guys and there's some back pay oh these guys there was some stuff that done and, and there was a lot of illegal stuff done but you can't go into all that you, and so all we're trying to do really is to get these guys 
basically the same thing that the old timers got. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the uh, pre-65 guys fought the same battle. There was no pension in the NBA up until 1965, and then they, the NBA agreed to give these guys a three hundred dollar a month instead of sixteen, but it's, it's something. It's three hundred a month, and, right? And uh, and so we're we're trying to just maybe even get a quality of that because believe it or not, there's guys out there that are a couple thousand a month or a thousand dollars a month would be the world of these guys. And of course, with the with <laughs> with the money the NBA is getting now, it would probably cost them about the, what what it would cost you need to go have a cup of coffee. That's what I don't understand, Neto. I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand greed. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. But it seems like it would be worth it for what it would cost the NBA. It would be worth it to them in, in positive press, I would think. I th- You know, I think so. And I'm not going to say anything bad about them because uh, I we've, we've finally got in touch with the NBA. And the people I've talked to, actually the person I've talked to in the NBA is in our corner and is working, trying to get something done for us and is a really, really terrific person. And um, and the statement that they've made is kind of, uh, legally they're not obligated, but his quote is, it's the right thing to do. And that kind of attitude to me is great. That's encouraging, and I think, yeah. And, I, and I'm, hope, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, with this new collective bargaining agreement and everything, they'll they'll throw something in there for the ABA guys. And and like they say, it's a finite number. I mean, 20 years from now, <laughs> since I started this thing, it's all, it started out with about 180 guys. And since I started, it's down to about 150 now. And as, as well, you know, a very good friend of mine, Mel Daniels, passed away last year, which was a very tough deal. And, uh, you know, I just see these guys going by the wayside. And, uh, and uh, you know... Uh, without these ABA guys, you wouldn't have the basketball you have today. So, you know, I hope hopefully that hopefully things will work out. And I think uh, you know, I think that uh, you know what's right's right, what's wrong's wrong, and, uh, and uh, I hope it'll work out. I agree with you, and Adam anyway, Adam Silver. If you're out there, talk, if you hear this podcast, do the some, do the right thing. Want to hear some? Want to hear some crazy money? I'll tell you a crazy story here, real quick. All right. After I have a beer, after I have a beer, I start telling stories. <laughs> Here's an interesting statistic. Okay, you you take the Indiana Pacer team. It was here in the ABA for nine years. Ten or eleven players per year, plus a, a coach, a trainer, and an assistant coach. Now you take all the salaries of all those people times nine. For nine years, total salaries for nine years. Okay. Yeah. Total all that up for nine years. The Pacer player Paul George makes more in twelve games <laughs> than we all made in nine years. <laughs> wow. I mean, if that so, doesn't put it in you perspective, know what? I'm glad. He, I, you know what? In, in my opinion, on on these kids making money down there, God bless them. You know, hey. Make all you can. They're, they're reaping the rewards, and you know it's what is it they say? A rising tide lifts all ships, or whatever, and that's great. Oh yeah. But but you got to take care of the people who who built the foundation. I mean, this would not be possible. And and like I say, I mean, it, 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 if this ever gets out there where Adam Silver hears it, I mean, do the right thing. I think that he's a, I think he's a pretty progressive guy on a lot of fronts, and doing something do like it, this. And I don't think. 
we've kind of held off. I've kind of held off. We kind of held off. We don't want you know. I'd rather do it. I'd rather do things peacefully and nice than go out in the public and start you know protesting and sure. raising heck and. I mean, you'd be surprised some of these guys that I've talked to. They want to go. They want to go have a sit in in front of a game or something and <laughs> right. protest. And I said, "Well, guys, you know, maybe that'll come. But you know, the best thing to do is uh, is uh, let's just try and do it peacefully." And I think, I think, you know, if you look at the NBA and the success they've had and this huge television contract, I, I, I think that you know, there's guys in that league in the front office that understand, you know. There are pioneers out there, and you, and, you, and you need to kind of take care of the people that got you where you're at. That's right. And you're talking, like you say, you're talking about you're talking about 150 guys. Uh, you know, it's yeah, it's, it's not like you're wanting them to <laughs> feed the world here. I mean, we're talking about a finite number. Basically, right? Basically, the basically to take care of everybody's patients, it costs them maybe three million bucks a year out of a two and a half billion. <laughs> right. It's the equivalent of somebody's twelfth man sitting down at the end of the bench, at, you know, averaging two points a game, basically. That's what yeah, we're looking or one at. Month, or, or one or one month of LeBron sour. LeBron did make a comment that he think he believes that you know that, that the pioneers should be you know should they should be really thinking about the pioneers, making sure they're taking care of everything. And and back about fifteen years ago, you know, Juwan Howard who played at Miami and places mm-hmm. like that, you know, Juwan Howard was a big advocate for the he's one of the guys that helped get those pre sixty five guys through and he became one of their uh, spokesmen and their advocates and he, he basically said, you know, I wouldn't make him as fourteen million if it worked for these guys. He played back in the thirties and forties and and uh so I I think I hopefully it'll work out but uh Anyway, well, let's but, talk about some funny stuff. All right, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now I, I got to get one more thing in here that ticks me off, and this is something that I'm going to bring up every time I do a podcast with an ABA guy. I'm going to bring this up because this is one of my pet peeves. I've got a burr in my saddle here on this issue. Why isn't George McGinnis in the Hall of Fame? Come on. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. George McGinnis is in the Hall of Fame, but Oscar Schmidt is. Yeah, Oscar Schmidt. Oscar Schmidt couldn't have made an NBA roster, and this clown is in the in in the when they have when they put him in. I'm sorry to say this, but when they put him in the Hall of Fame, I watched his little speech, and he gets up and says, "Well, if I wanted to, I could have been one of the greatest players." No, he couldn't. He 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 was like a 50th round draft choice, and and he'd have been lucky to even play. In the league, and, and but a guy like George McGinnis is really burned my saddle because I played with this guy, and when he was in his prime, man, I mean this guy was a monster. He was he was as good as anybody. Do not understand it. My my understanding is of every player who's eligible. So you know the guys that are playing today, obviously their time hasn't come up yet. But among retired players who are eligible for the Basketball Hall of Fame. McGinnis is the only ABA or NBA MVP that is not in the Hall of Fame. The only one. George, George, I mean, (laughs) he was an all-star in both leagues. I mean, they can't say he didn't play in the NBA. I mean, give me a break. I I don't get it. Well, you know, the problem with it is it's like the rest of the world. It's all politics. I mean, but to me, it's wrong. And, uh, and, uh, you know... 
truthfully, if they wanted to, they should have an ABA section of the, of the dang Hall of Fame. I mean, you, you, I can name you 30 guys uh, in the NBA that are better than that. You know, they get these European players and some of these guys, and they, <laughs> they could, these guys couldn't even make a team back when we were playing. But, you know, that's sour grapes. You know, this is part of it. I just hope, I hope George gets in. I really hope, uh, he, he, you know, he was a great player, and he's a super guy, and uh and, uh, and there's no there's no reason rhyme or reason why you shouldn't be involved. It's so ridiculous. I'm going to continue to bang the drum with what, whatever voice I have. I'm going to bang the drum for George McGinnis because it, it it just rankles me. I don't know if it's political. Sure it is. And it, it was it was Arabic. Arabic was a jerk back then. And and uh, and um, uh, you know the thing of it is they formed that about oh what five six years ago they formed what they call it. ABA committee where they would put an ABA player in every year. Well, you know, we're all basketball players. We all lace, lace them up just like everybody else. I mean, what makes, why only one player? I mean, <laughs> it just, it makes no sense. I get mad, so I don't want to talk. About all right. I, all right. Let's, let, let's talk about, all right. Let's talk about something happy here before we go. I, anytime you read uh, about you on the internet and I, I try to do my research everything you read it always mentions the, the the various exotic animals that you had back in the back in the day all right so tell my audience a little bit about uh, these experiences you had with uh, uh, lions and wildcats and all that good stuff well you know I was I was just a normal kid I was a little little goofy things but i i really lo- liked animals and, and i regret some of the things i did but i i bought a i had a um i had an ocelot that was my first one and then i sold i sold the ocelot to a uh to a compound in florida and the funny story was i had a i had him neutered because if you don't have a neuter day go crazy in your house and he was pretty big. And all right, no, no. Before uh, you, before you go off. any further, I don't. I, I hate to interrupt you, but but you don't know what an ocelot is. How, I, I know what an ocelot is. I had to look it up. <laughs> I had to look it up. But I, but I want to know how one goes about. And some of my audience is probably like they're probably thinking that you had an ostrich, or something. But an ocelot is a, <laughs> is a is a cat, right? It's a, 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 a an exotic cat. But how does one how does one go about obtaining an ocelot? Well, it's different back then. There was a guy that had a pet store in Indianapolis. And he said he said you want one. I said yeah, and he ordered it. Bingo, I got it. It's that easy. But uh, an ocelot looks like a lot like a little leopard. It may be about the size of a, you know oh probably a medium sized dog. It was not. But uh, I sold. I had it neutered. And I sold them to a compound in Florida. And the big rap back then was that the ocelots would not breed in captivity. You know, they, they've never, they, it's so hard to have a female ocelot have a cat. So they're down there breeding this thing. <laughs> and I didn't know they were doing this. And I, I stopped off to see them when I was down in Florida. And, and they said, you know, we, we've been trying to breed them. And he just, we just can't have any kittens. Well, an ocelot will perform even though he's uh, been neutered. Okay? <laughs> and I told the guy, I said, well, I said, do me a favor. I said, pull his tail up. There's something missing there, isn't it? And the guy looked, and I thought he was going to have a heart attack. 
because he'd been trying to breed this cat for about a year and a half, and, the, and he'd been neutered. But then my second, the second one I bought was a Marque. Have you looked that up? No. Now you're gonna have to educate me on that one. Now that 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 might be the greatest cat in the whole world. A Marque is similar to an ocelot, real long tail, but very small. But size of a big house cat. Gorgeous. One of the biggest regrets of my life was I had her in college and I sold her. I wish I had them. But uh, and then the then the the last one we had was my roommate was in uh, Chicago, and he called me from Chicago and he said, "Hey, I'm in this pet store." And he says, "I can buy a lion cub for fifty or a hundred bucks. You want to go halves?" But sure, why not? So he brings his. I thought he was kidding, truthfully, and he comes walking in the door with this lion cub. It was a female lion, and back then there was a movie called Born Free. Yeah, sure. Do you remember? I do, yeah. So that was a big deal. It was a female lion cub, so we named her Julie, and she grew up and lived in my house for about a year and a half and got real big, and and, uh, she was just a big baby. And she was about half grown when I got rid of her, still over 200 and some pounds. And uh, she was sleeping in my bed, and if I come home a little inebriated some night, she didn't want me to leave. She'd just growl, and I'd go sleep on the couch. But, uh, <laughs> she just, uh, so you've got, so you're, those things. you're living with a 200 plus pound, nearly, nearly lion. grown lion. And it well, was, you got to remember that that's a half-grown lion. <laughs> about three or fifty. Or yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you. Once they get over two hundred pounds, I'm concerned. So <laughs> I'm concerned. Well, well before they get to two hundred pounds. Yeah, she was. She, I mean, it's amazing. It's just, it's just like a big baby. I mean, it's just like a. It's an amazing thing. But the, what I always wished, done in the back of my mind, we had a, we rented a house. My brother, myself, and a friend of mine. And what I always had the yearning for, I was hoping that while we were gone, she was there, that somebody'd break into our house. I always wish that would have happened. Because <laughs> you imagine some clown walking in with a flashlight trying to rob my house. He turns around. Yeah, that would have that would have been <laughs> that was pretty my, perfect. That was my misspent youth, and you can't do that anymore. They won't let you do it. But she actually got one time. She got loose at a fraternity party and got loose in town. And I was really worried, and I guess she the police found her, and she was just hungry and wanting to eat. But uh, well, did they just bring her back to you? Story. I mean, that's another story. That's another story. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Before we go, uh, t- tell me a-, a little bit more. When can we expect we change the game to uh, uh, to drop and be there for us ABA guys to devour? It's being published by a company called the Hilton Publishing Company, and the guy's name is Hilton Hudson. He's the uh, cardio uh, surgeon that owns the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to try and get it out by springtime, uh, especially we want to get it out a little before the reunion. And uh, like I said, hopefully, like I said, June or maybe, maybe maybe May or June. But we want we want to make it really good, and it's going to have some. It's going to have some really, really. If for people that want to hear the real stories and your story, we're going to have a whole section. We're actually going to have a whole section in it where we're going to we're going to uh, reprint the uh, P and L statements for the Pacers and all the salaries and uh, and uh, all all the crazy things that went on in the league. And uh, it'll be it'll be it'll be a real history book. But the, the, what really makes it neat is it's you know most books these days are he said she said or their third or fourth person you know, I heard it from this guy or from that guy but Dick Tinker he was the man you know, he's the guy and 
I'll tell you another quick story. Did you ever hear about, you know who Sam Shulman is, don't you? You heard that name? Yes, I've heard the name. Sam Shulman was the owner of the Seattle Supersonics. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he liked the ABA a lot. And he wanted the merger to go through big time because he was, he was hurting out there in Seattle. And this is in 1970. And there were two people that, that were totally against the merger. One of them was the guy that owned the, um, Jack Cook, the guy that owned the uh, Lakers. Right. And so I guess Sam Shulman uh, goes to Cook and in this meeting with Pinkerton Hammond basically told Cook, he said, here's the deal. He said, if you don't sign this merger agreement, he said, I'm going to take my Seattle Supersonic team, I'm moving to the ABA, and I'm moving to LA, and I'm building an arena right across from yours. True story. And wow. a week later, old uh, old Jack Kent signed, signed the deal. <laughs> now that you can't, you, you know, you can't make that stuff. No, up. I mean that's this, and it's coming from the guy that was right there. Did and uh, this is from. these are the stories that I'm, I can tell you right now. This is a book that I'm going to buy and I'm going to sit down and I'm probably going to read it in one setting. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, I love to read, but it's rare that I sit down with a book and just knock it out in one setting. And I, I very much feel like We Changed the Game is going to be one of those books for me. Yeah, we're going to have some funny stuff. You know, we're going to tell stories about Slick. I mean, the stories about Slick are incredible. And we're going to have a story about, you know, I had my nightclub in Indianapolis. And uh, it, it was, you, you realize we had a standing rule in my bar in my nightclub that those were the days when the teams would fly in you know the night before the game and and stay in the hotel and they and invariably they all a lot of the teams would come to my club my nightclub the night before the game and we had a standing rule free beer free free whatever they want free whiskey okay because a player doesn't play as good if he's on the <laughs> that day and that, there was one night that's just smart there was one night well, there was one night, and I'm not going to tell you who it is on the air, but there was one night when this team came in and their leading scorer was with them, and he was one of the best players in the league, averaging about 30. And uh, he came in, and, uh, of course, we had the best-looking girls in the whole city at the, at the bar, and they loved the Pacers. And she hooked up with this gorgeous blonde. And uh, as she's walking out the door, she turned and looked at me and gave me this big smile and a wink. <laughs> the next day we're at the end of the third quarter we ended up with five points and like two rebounds but at the end of the third quarter I think he had three points and he's dying I thought he was going to pass out and I poked him in the ribs and I said hey man have a rough night last night <laughs> and he just smiled he just smiled at me <laughs> and she got free drinks for a week <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes the ho- the home court advantage comes from uh, uh, interesting places. I guess. It was it was you know it was a it was a we didn't make any money, but you know it was a wonderful time and it was a wonderful era and uh, you know I think we started something especially in the city and the whole uh, in, you know in basketball and uh, and uh, you know you can't take that away from us and I and I think. Uh, you know, it was great to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, all the people we met and all the relationships we made, and, 
it's really pretty cool, and I, I'm really glad they didn't have uh, social media back then because we'd all be in jail. Well, listen, you got I got got to make me a deal here. When when we when the book comes out, come back on the podcast, and we'll we'll promote this book some more and and get the word out to to all these folks that I know are going to enjoy it. Well, how about this? How about this? I send you a copy. You do your one-night read, and then I'll come on the podcast. That, that is perfect, all right? That is a <laughs> you, you, you got a deal right there on that, all right? Okay, man. That's it. Now, listen, hang on the line. I'm going to wrap up the podcast right now. Stay on the line for a second because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to taunt my listeners a little bit. The podcast is, is, is about to wrap up, but when I get off the line, I'm going to have Neto tell me who that superstar was, and then I'll take it to the grave with me. There's some, there's some person to run in the podcast. I'm sorry, guys. I, Neto's told you a lot of good stories today, so you're going to have to be satisfied with that. I'm going to get the skinny on who that guy was, and then my lips are sealed. So hang on the line, Neto. I'm not kidding, either. Right. So thanks for coming on the show. Enjoyed it so much, and we're going to get you back on for sure. Hey, great. I, I enjoyed it, and uh, let's, all, let's get all these young people out there to figure out what the ABA was and how good it was, all right? Absolutely. That's what it's all about, my friend. All right, thanks. Sounds good. Oh, man, that was so much fun. And we're definitely going to get Neto back on the podcast when the the book comes out. Can't wait to read that. And uh, not only did we get some great basketball stories today, but I feel like I really upped my exotic animal game. I I feel like the knowledge there is is greater than it was before today. Um, and, And, oh, yeah. Uh, Neto did tell me the identity of that superstar player, and I guess maybe I should share it with you. Nah, I can't do it. I can't do it. Next week, my guest is former Major League outfielder Billy Sample, who will be discussing his days with the Texas Rangers, the New York Yankees, Atlanta Braves, his broadcasting career, and what he's doing now. You know, Billy actually wrote and produced and starred in a really funny movie, uh, a couple of years ago, and he's got a new book called A Year in Pinstripes and Then Some. So we'll be talking about that, maybe even give a signed copy away. How does that sound? Ah, I hear the big fellas, and you know what that means. Looks like I'm out of time. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I'll see you back here next week because I know that you'll never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. <laughs>